It was 2018 when Untextable producer Arya Barquesa was visiting his extended family in Iran. It was August. It was hot and dry. It was definitely poor air quality because it's Tehran. I was walking down a busy street, lots of cars everywhere, lots of traffic. It's very busy, very dense. Then you also see in the center numerous men and women in white clothing and white hijabs in this very chaotic intersection. And I witnessed a White Wednesday protest. These White Wednesday protests, they occur every Wednesday where women wear a white hijab and they take it off in the street and they kind of like throw it as a form of protest against the compulsory hijab law. 50 years ago, the streets of Iran looked far different than they do today. Iran was under a dictator shah supported by Western powers. The country had rapidly adopted a lot of Western values around consumerism and gender, and one of the most significant changes was when the monarchy went as far as outlawing the hijab for 40 years. But in 1979, there was a revolution. The country's leaders were exiled and religious rulers took power. They required women to once again cover their heads, remove women from schools and workplaces, and prevented genders from intermingling. The way societies treat gender is always in flux and always debated. But when Arya accidentally attended a White Wednesday protest on a hot August day in Tehran, he suddenly realized how one-sided his understanding of gender politics really was. When I think of gender politics and sexuality, I've thought of it in a very American context, just simply being an American teenager. So making those connections is trying to find similarities or differences between Iran and the United States. Arya wanted to hear another Iranian's view on gender, so he read Sexual Politics in Modern Iran by Dr. Janet Afari. Dr. Afari argues that the story of gender in Iran is one that Westerners often view through the wrong lens. The question I would have for her is, how has gender and sexuality in Iran changed over time? Is Iran underway for its next sexual revolution? What does that entail and what does that look like? In this episode, Arya Barquesa interviews Dr. Jan Afari about the undeniable link between gender and revolution. I'm Gabe Hostin, and this is Untextbooked. Stay tuned. Untextbooked. First, in this book, you briefly acknowledge that resilience is central to Iranian culture. In what ways is it intrinsic to Iranian culture? So when we look at the beginning of the 20th century, life is very, very defined and extremely hierarchical, where women did not work, did not go to school, did not have an education, right? And when I talk about women, at this point, it's primarily upper-class women who were the most segregated in this society, because working class women actually worked on the field. And basically, they were far more egalitarian, if you will. I'm not trying to you know, sugarcoat it. But in terms of standard of living between men and women, it wasn't that much of a difference, right? And But upper class women, they were segregated. They were secluded. And the more upper class you were, actually, the more segregated you were. If you look at the life of a young woman, for example, Let's say she's 10 or 12. 
her aspirations at this point are to find a spouse, find a husband, to get married, have a wonderful wedding, have a big wedding with lots and lots of gifts. So basically set her up for a comfortable life. And then to have children, preferably maybe six um, or maybe more, because this is a world in which seven out of 10 children die. So if you became pregnant 12 times and maybe six of them lived, that was pretty good. And then of these six, the preference was to have five boys and, and one girl. Boys are far more uh, preferred in this world, right? And then if you married into a comfortable upper middle class family, let's say, it was understood that at a certain point when your husband became more wealthy, he would take a second wife. Or he might take, if he was less wealthy, he might take what was called as temporary wives. And temporary wives were sort of concubines, right? But they were legitimate concubines. They kind of worked for like, like maids for you, you know, so that their job was they slept with your husband, but they also worked like maids for you. And so at that point, your wish was that when he did take a second wife, he took a concubine, he took someone from a lower status. And so therefore, you were still respected as the first wife in this family, right? And so, as I said, these hierarchies were extremely rigid. And the kind of resistance that existed in this world are, you know, more like uh, weapons of the weak. So, for example... Uh, a girl would be approached and her family would ask her to marry so-and-so and she didn't like him. She didn't want to marry him. So when they came to ask for her hand, she would like act really clumsy, drop the tray of tea that she brought in and in various ways showed that she was not interested in this marriage, for example. And the other kind of resistance that you had towards your husband was that you became extremely friendly and almost subservient to your mother-in-law and your sister-in-law. And the idea was that your mother-in-law and your sister-in-law would then protect you, you know, from the ravishes of this life. So when your husband wanted to take a second wife, maybe they convinced him not to take a second wife, or maybe they convinced him to take his lower class second wife. So the way that we think about resistance and agency, these things did not exist in this world because their options are very limited. So we've talked about the context of 19th century Iran and how women found agency in that. And how did women's agency change? So uh, this begins to change um, first in the Ottoman Empire when women started publishing journals and essentially saying, you know, what is this life we have? We're basically slaves to our husbands and the men in our lives, and why can't women be educated? And then gradually, why can't women have a job? Muslim community of the Caucasus is also now starts talking about these issues. Question of education of women gradually becomes important. So when we look at Iran in this period, it's really behind both the Ottomans and the Caucasus. You don't have schools for boys, let alone for girls. And in terms of economy, it's far behind. Now you start to have calls for democracy, and all of these leads to um, the Iranian Constitutional Revolution, which happens in 1906. And the Constitutional Revolution primarily asks for two things. It wants to limit the powers of the king, and it wants to limit the powers of the clerical establishment. So they form a parliament, they write a constitution. It's a very progressive constitution. They demand rights for ordinary ordinary meaning the merchant class people, 
They demand the right to vote, freedom of expression, freedom of organization, all the things that we have in the Bill of Rights, you know. And part of the social democratic demands is the right for women. So this in this period means two things. It becomes a right to education and the right to appear in the public spaces. So it's from this period that we begin to see women in Iran really become as a movement, start taking action. As you start having this really incredible resistance, all of which is uh, financed by the women themselves. They start selling their dowries, you know, the money that I said these upper-class women had and they were so happy to have it, they start selling that. And with that money, they start creating orphanages for girls and schools for girls and then societies for girls. Because it really takes another 15 years before the government does anything for women and opens up public schools for them. So right now, it's all the women's own initiatives, right? And so that sort of is the first stage of the women's movement in Iran. The second stage, it happens after 1925. So the years 1925 to 1941 become this really fast period of modernization in Iran. Part of this modernization is Reza Shah says, I want us to look like the Westerners because they're making so much fun of us for wearing the veil. So the meaning of the veil changed. In the 19th century and early 20th century, the veil was a status to symbolize an upper-class woman, right? Because I said, remember, I said, the more upper-class you were, the more segregated you were. So the veil was something that the lower-class woman aspired to. You say, oh, look at that lucky princess. She doesn't have to work. But by the 30s, the meaning of the veil has changed dramatically. Now the veil is not is something that if you want to become free and emancipated, you ditch the veil. So now the meaning of agency is unveiling, going to school. And when the universities open in the 30s, it means going to college. And now women really become active in these organizations. As you see, I'm trying to explain to you that the meaning of agency changes, you know, at one point in the 19th century and early 20th century is sort of becoming this, uh, you know, upper class woman who has control over her maids and slaves. Uh, and then it becomes becoming a constitutionalist and then it becomes becoming a communist. And then it also changes again as we go through history. But now that rapid modernization of Iran brought a rapid rollback for women following the 1979 revolution. While it was not a complete return to the 19th century, what did the revolution mean then to these new generations of urban and rural women? If you want to know why fundamentalism happened in the Middle East, you have to look at the West and what happened in the West and what was reflected in films and television was a natural progression of rights, right? I mean, there had been all these fights for civil rights movement. Um, minority women started to claim even more rights. And then now we have gay rights, you know. So it's a natural progression of rights in the West. It has this absolute backlash in the Middle East in the way that it is perceived, right? As women become more educated, they get jobs. Well, now they don't want to have an arranged marriage. So they say no to their fathers. And when they're unhappy in marriage and the husband is beating them up, they call for divorce or they leave. And when the right to divorce is given to them, they get the divorce and they start living independently. And the clerics become very angry with this. But the second thing that's happening is that it gradually a gay lifestyle starts to emerge in the West. So in the 60s and the 70s, people in the Middle East start looking at the West 
And they start seeing that what they regard as essentially pedophilia, because they're not making any distinction between a consensual gay life and pedophilia, is encouraged by the West. This backlash is shown by the more traditional sectors of society, by rural people who are coming to the cities and seeing these pictures of women in bikinis, you know, in movie theaters and posters everywhere. So one by one, you start to have these fundamentalist movements who say, no, we don't want this Western modernity, these aspects of Western modernity, but they combine it with a discourse of anti-imperialism. So they say, we don't want Western imperialism, we don't want Western colonialism, but we also don't want this, um, you know, immorali these immoralities of the West. And that's how the Iranian revolution happens, 1979. It's a coalition of all these sectors of society coming together, agreeing on two things. Number one, we want the European powers out of in America, out of our country. And number two, we don't like their sexual mor morals. And that's so that's how the revolution happens. Um, we see after 1979 an immediate wave of laws that revert um, some of those new rights. How did women find resilience amidst all this, rural and urban middle-class women? How did they cooperate with the regime or how did they go against the regime? Iranian women were absolutely horrified. I mean, I've been having nightmares in the last few weeks with what happened in Afghanistan and the Taliban returning because to me it's very, it's almost deja vu, you know, to see all that happening again. In a very short time, um, women lost dramatic rights. The, the right to divorce, the right to birth control, the right to abortion. Uh, daycare centers were deliberately closed down. Women were pushed from as university professors, as judges, um, and essentially turned into second-class citizens, right, in the society. And resistance in this port was heroic. I mean, members of two groups called the Mujahideen and the Fida'in, many of them were women. They actually fought, had fought a guerrilla war, underground guerrilla war, to fight this, this regime. Many died, many were imprisoned. Another form of resistance was to just leave. Millions of Iranian women uh, left, many left their husbands. And for a long time, you used to have colonies of Iranian women in all the major cities around the world, you know, Lisbon, Chicago, New York, Paris, everywhere I traveled, there would always be a group of Iranian women, single women. Many had run away from home, many had left their children behind, even their husbands. And they were becoming writers and journalists they formed this remarkable diaspora, publishing and documenting the abuses that Iranian women suffered. There are all sorts of resistance movements in Iran going on by journalists, by writers, by teachers. And the latest form of it was something called White Wednesdays, which is that women would take their hijab off and they knew they were going to be in prison for that. And they knew they were going to be beaten and tortured. And they still did that in myriad ways. And today, actually, the diaspora movement, Iranian women is trying to help Afghan women. So the conversation that we're having today now is we understand how hard life is for Afghan women. Many of them are fleeing. How can we help them? How can we support them? We have many Iranian women who, uh, in addition to working on issues of Iranian women, 
have actually taken up issues of refugees around the world. I can have, there's so many of them that a few years ago, I decided that we should start an internship program at my university to help um, women who are wor working with refugees. So we have a program at UCSP where uh, we assign um, undergraduate students, particularly the ones who know Persian or Dari, of course, or Turkish or any of the languages in the region. And it's a digital program and we assign them to agencies. And primarily these are women run agencies and they're primarily Iranian women run agencies all over the world to help with refugee populations. So kind of we become an expert in that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having this really insightful interview. Um, and Dr. Janet Afari is the author of Sexual Politics in Modern Iran. Professor Afari, where can listeners find more of your work? So they can look up my work on janetafari.com. Very simple. And, and I'm coming up with a new book in a year, uh, which is going to look at gender and sexuality in the South Caucasus. Uh, Kamran Afari and I are publishing this book with Edinburgh University Press. Dr. Janet Afari is a professor of religious studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Aria Barquesa is in his second year at the London School of Economics. Our website is untextbook.org and we're on social media at Untextbooked. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbooked is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Entman. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer. Untextbooked is a project of Got History, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening.